What is up, faithful listeners, new listeners, and anybody in between? Welcome to episode three of season two of Journeys into Whiteness. I am your your host, as always, Jimmy Lincoln, and we're going to explore, as always, some topics from my personal life that delve deeply into whiteness and white privilege and how these ideas are communicated to white youth. Um, And obviously, if you're talking about the concept of whiteness and white privilege, then you have to talk about the concept of race and and racism and and the power that kind of undergirds this whole socially constructed system of race that humans have built. And today's episode To catch you up, by the way, at least in season two, season one was mostly stuff that had to do with my my extended family, things that, you know, existed or occurred even before I was born or things that happened to me as a as a real young child, like elementary age child. Season two, for those who have been listening, you already know this, but season two, we're moving into my middle school and high school years. And I mentioned this, I think, last episode, but that means that season two is in some ways the most fun and simultaneously most embarrassing for me personally, Um, because there's just so many stories in this season of me acting like a total spoiled, immature jackass, like most adolescents do, especially male adolescents, especially middle class white male adolescents, I would argue. And today's episode is a prime example of how white privilege plays out, uh, and, and it focuses a lot on some of some of my middle school hijinks and mischief. We'll get to that, but I want to take a little intentionally this time. I know half the time they're unintentional, but intentionally today, I want to take a little little detour for a few moments and talk about something that is happening as I'm recording these episodes for season two. And the reason I want to talk about this event is because obviously it deals with race and concepts of race and power and privilege, but also because it it harkens back to a topic that came up in season one. And I want to talk a little bit about Dwayne Haskins. If you're a sports fan, particularly a football fan, then you already know who Dwayne Haskins is. If you are not a sports fan or a football fan, then let me give you a real brief background as to who this young young man is. And then we'll talk about how recent events illustrate what I see anyway as some problematic issues with how we talk about young black men, and like always, my goal is more to ask myself than to ask you guys some tough questions. I don't pretend to have the answers. So once again, for the defensive-sounding emails, and I'm, I swear I'm going to have to do a whole, whole episode on just white defensiveness, because I would argue about half the emails and half the correspondences I get from my listeners are just blow me away. They're incredibly impressive, and... They're from white folks who are doing some heavy lifting. And by that, I mean some self-reflecting, some self-assessing, holding themselves and their family and friends accountable 
for things that maybe they had never even deeply considered before, whether it's unconscious or subconscious acts of white supremacy. And those emails and those texts and those messages on social media really, really inspire me and give me hope. And, and I'll, I would even say invigorate me and like empower me. And I'm like, shit, I've got to keep going with this project and, you know, keep digging. The other half of the email, though, are about as disappointing as they can be because these correspondences from my white listeners are obsessed, whether they realize it or not, with explaining to me why whatever episode or whatever story I told in whatever episode they heard, they're obsessed with explaining to me why it wasn't about race or it wasn't about white supremacy or it wasn't about white privilege. And there's just a defensiveness that kind of oozes out of the page or off the screen. And the only response I ever typically have, if I even do respond to these people, is that part of me just wants to say, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe these stories that I'm bringing up had nothing to do with race. Maybe I am, like a friend mentioned to me this past summer, maybe I'm a hammer always in search of a nail when it comes to topics of race and white supremacy. However, all I'm asking folks to do and all I'm really trying to do myself is to kind of at least open the door to the possibility that more events, more experiences, and more of our behaviors than we've ever admitted before, and by we, I mean white folks, are affected by race and by power and by privilege. That's all I'm asking is just let's open the door to that possibility. So I'm sure the defensive, explanatory Excuse-making emails and social media messages and text messages will still occur. I'm not naive enough to think they'll go away. Because one of white, I have discovered that one of white people's favorite thing in the world to do is to loudly declare how something or how they or how someone is just not racist and then give a million reasons as to why that is so. So I don't expect these to go away. But... The reason I bring that up is just to mention I'm not looking for hard truths, right? Like this isn't forensic CSI type stuff. It's more me trying to have some some hard conversations and some difficult conversations and bring up some complex questions. So just keep that in mind. I'm not trying to tell anyone necessarily I think this is how it is. I'm more trying to say this is how it could be. Have you considered this? So with that in mind, I want to talk a little bit about my boy Dwayne Haskins. And like I said, for non-sports fans, non-football fans, Dwayne Haskins was, up until about a week ago, he was a quarterback for my favorite football team, the Washington football team. Formerly the Washington racial slurs, but uh, this season, for a variety of reasons, mostly out of self-interest, but whatever, I'll take what I can get. The team dropped its incredibly hateful name, nickname, and has been, been going by the nickname the Washington football team. Mr. Haskins is, or as I should say, was a quarterback for this team up until a week ago when he was fired, or as they say in sports, released. But it just means, you know, it means fired. And this is his second year in the NFL. So he's young. He was a extremely high draft pick for our team 15th I believe in the first round and he he was drafted 
aka selected to the Washington football team after one incredible, amazing season of football at Ohio State University. Or I should say one year starting as the quarterback at Ohio State University. He threw more than 50 touchdowns. He threw for thousands of passing yards and really, really just put up some incredible numbers and demonstrated some really impressive skill as a quarterback. So my team drafted him. My favorite team drafted him last year. He played last year and looked like a lot of rookie, a.k.a. first-year quarterbacks look. At times, he looked really good. At other times, he looked lost. And that's normal for anybody in the first year of their job. But it's especially normal for anybody in the first year of playing NFL football, and especially, especially normal for anybody in their first year of playing quarterback in the National Football League. It's an incredibly complex, difficult position, and it's not a – it's not a position that even those who play it well, play well automatically. And so Dwayne Haskins showed flashes of potential last year, but often the results were, were less than desirable. Now, overall, the team was a bit of a hot mess last year. And for anybody who's even tangentially familiar or you know partially familiar with, with football and sports, they already know that Washington football has been a bit of a joke for the last, oh, I don't know, few decades. <laughs> And so he wasn't in an ideal work situation either. And that's one of the first things I'll point out before I even get to his story personally, or at least his story this week personally, is that sports in this country, we forget for the practitioners. Professional sports are still a job. And we are so sports obsessed. And I'll I'll count myself as one of those people. Like I adore sports and watch way more sports than I probably should. But we forget that these are humans doing a job. And and because we care so much about the outcomes of these children's games and because we spend literally billions of dollars supporting this industry, we we often forget that it's human beings engaged in a job that we are watching and that we are yelling at and that we are angered with and that we are judging and all of that. So just keep that in mind. But Mr. Haskins, up and down first year inconsistent, not great. Personally, as a fan of Washington football, I've never been a big fan of him as a player. I don't know him as a person, so I don't pretend to, you know, judge who he is as a person. As a player, I wasn't really impressed with him last year. Now, in his defense, like I said, our team was a bit of a hot mess last year, like it has been for many years. So it's hard to tease out his individual performance from the overall environment from which it emerged, from which he was surrounded in. This year, we have a new staff. We have some new young talent on the team. And once again, his performance on the field has been inconsistent at best. You could argue, you know, if you really are into football and you watch the tape closely, that it's possible he's even regressed a little bit. But long story short, he has not been a great quarterback this year when he has played for our team or my team. Notice those possessive possessive words, those possessive pronouns we use when we talk about sports. It drives me crazy, but I'm still going to do it uh, because it's it's just something that I – it's so ingrained in me. But this hour and we and me is so funny to me, Um, this loyalty we attach to what are essentially business ventures. However – 
I digress. Back to Mr. Haskins. Did not have a great year on the football field this year. Off the field, he perhaps even had a worse year. And by that, I mean his behavior as the face of an NFL franchise has come under a lot of scrutiny, particularly for how he has behaved in the midst of our COVID-19 slash coronavirus pandemic. The NFL, like all these professional sports leagues, has all these rules and protocols set up in place to make sure the games are as safe as possible. Now, we all know that's bullshit, right? As safe as possible would mean not playing the games. But, you know, whether we're talking about college sports or whether we're talking about professional sports, the money involved in these enterprises is so much that the people who stand to make the money, the owners, but also the players themselves, at least at the professional level, and even at the college level, the players see it as an opportunity to invest in future money-making ventures, are willing to take some amount of risk to continue the season. However, the NFL, like other leagues, have, have tried to mitigate that risk by creating all these protocols about, about player behavior and what they should do on the road and who they should interact with and all of this. Mr. Haskins, twice this season, violated COVID-19 protocols for the NFL. Once was earlier in the year. I want to say it was probably about two months ago. Um, I don't know all the details, but basically tried to book a reservation for a family friend at the hotel the team was staying at before a game, and that violated the, the kind of soft quarantine protocols that these teammates and these teams are under throughout the week and especially before a game, the night before a game. And he received a fine and a mild reprimand for that. Then, just about a week, 10 days ago, give or take, after a game in which he did not play very well, in a game that was really important to the Washington football team's playoff chances and to their overall kind of success this year, after a game in which they lost and Mr. Haskins did not play well, Pictures emerged on social media of him and the stories of exactly where he was have kind of changed from strip club to girlfriend's birthday party to who knows exactly where. But pictures emerged of him indoors at a party unmasked. So not only is that in violation of, I would guess at this point, every state's kind of protocols and guidelines for how to behave during the midst of this pro, the, the midst of this pandemic, but it was in violation of some contractual protocols related to his employment. Not a good look. Not a good look at all. But remember, too, and this is for, you know, non-football fans and non-sports fans, Mr. Haskins is, I believe, 23, if not younger. So let's let's kind of tuck that away for a second in the back of our minds in this, in this story because, woo, 23, man, if you'd have met me at 23 – and a lot of y'all listening knew me at 23. I was not the picture of self-accountability and responsibility and maturity like most 23-year-olds. But back to Mr. Haskins. So combining his dual violations of COVID-19 protocols this season, his poor play on the field, and rumors of his less-than-stellar preparation off the field, namely 
watching film and kind of being a nerd before the game. And, and for those who don't know the NFL well, and this is true of all professional sports, but I would argue the NFL probably more so than any professional sport, the amount of preparation, intellectual preparation and intellectual complexity that goes into succeeding in that, at that level of this sport is, is just, it's hard to even explain to someone who's unfamiliar with it. It involves Hours each day of watching film and understanding what your opponent's going to do and understanding how your team wants to, wants to attack what your opponent's going to do. So it's, it's, it's kind of creating a blueprint for a hyper violent yet hyper complex chess game throughout the week. And so there were some rumors and how, how valid these are. I'm not sure that Mr. Haskins is, has not always been this season the most diligent at preparing himself. So you take those three things, his poor play over the course of two seasons, his COVID-19 irresponsibility, and then rumors of his lack of preparation. Combine that with the fact that we have a new coach this year who, who was not involved in picking him for our team and drafting him, and the Washington football team decided shortly after that most recent game where whereupon Mr. Haskins was witnessed at a social event without a mask for hours at a time. Mr. Haskins was fired from the Washington football team. He was released. Okay. So far, so good. As a football fan, as a Washington football fan, I don't ever want to see anybody get fired, but I don't think at this point he's a very good NFL quarterback. Now, that doesn't mean he can't develop into one. But at this point, from what I've seen over the last two seasons, and I've seen a lot of his play, and I think most Washington football fans would agree with this. Most NFL fans would probably agree with this. But at this point in his young, young, young career, he's not a very good NFL quarterback. He's got a lot of talent and ability, but he makes a lot of poor decisions. I don't think he reads the field very well like a lot of young quarterbacks. Once again, I think some of his decision-making is less than <laughs> less than prudent on the field. But that's not really what I'm here to talk about. Because there are about 10,000 quarterbacks throughout the history of the NFL who the description I just gave of Dwayne Haskins who would also fit that description in terms of guys who have ability but who just aren't successful on the field. Remember, there's only 30 I think 32, maybe 30, I should know, but 32 teams, I believe, in the NFL. So playing quarterback at the NFL level, we're talking about the elite, the elite, the elite in your profession. And that's something else we forget about professional sports, right? Like we know in almost every other profession, even in those professions that have this veneer of respectability, whether it's doctors or lawyers or what have you, we know that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of practitioners in this profession. And we know that they're not all equally successful and equally as capable. And we kind of understand that and accept it. When it comes to sports, we don't, we tend to forget that. We tend not to, not to accept it and we tend to take it personal when someone's not successful. So Mr. Haskins has been let go and is currently unemployed. There's a good chance that someone will give him a contract at a, at a much reduced rate but give him a contract and at least give him some sort of shot to be on their team next year. 
probably not as a starter, but as a backup and as a in a supporting role. What I bring Mr. Haskins up for in the mid in the in the context of this podcast, and I'm, I mentioned that it harkened back to some discussions we had in season one about about sports and how black athletes are discussed by white coaches and by white participants and by white fans in sports. And we talked a little bit about my feelings about Cam Newton and how maybe I was too hard on Cam because of his race. I've noticed the way that many people have talked about Mr. Haskins in the last few weeks. And I think the tone and the language, the diction that people are using to discuss him is filtered through a prism of race. And now I, you know, I could get kind of lazy and say, well, duh, of course it is, because I believe everything in, in our society is. So I guess in some ways this is, this conversation is a truism. But I've heard commentators talk about how he must not love the game because he didn't prepare as much as he should have, or at least prepare in the way they wanted him to. From all reports, by the way, Mr. Haskins' attitude off the field is positive. From all reports, he's not involved in anything nefarious or illegal or dangerous or anything like that. So we're talking about just in a professional context, because he isn't very good at this moment, and because he possibly hasn't fully figured out how to be a professional like most people at his age, I've heard commentators say he must not love football. Now, if you're listening, you might not think that's a big deal, but in professional sports, when you're accused of not loving the game, which is such a bullshit cliche, such a subjectively bullshit cliche anyway, but that's a big accusation to sports guys and gals, I guess. And I've always thought it's silly anyway, because who the fuck cares if you love? Like, we all, we pretend that that professional sports and that sports in general are this epic, heroic thing, this test of character. No, they're not. They're, they're children's games. Now, they're fun as shit to watch, but they're just children's games. But I've heard Boomer Esiason, I believe, was the one, a former NFL quarterback, a former white NFL quarterback, who still is involved in the analytical television media side of professional football, accused Mr. Haskins of not loving the game, which is a very, very big accusation. And then there have been black TV personalities, particularly Booger McFarlane, who have taken Mr. Haskins' immaturity and irresponsibility off the field and lack of success on the field and painted an entire negative picture of young black NFL players across the league. And it has just struck me how both of these interpretations of Mr. Haskins are incredibly affected by how we view race. Now, yes, white quarterbacks are often immature and irresponsible and unsuccessful. Happens all the time. Rarely, if ever, are these quarterbacks accused of not loving the game enough. Even Johnny Manziel, who's probably the closest comparison to someone who was incredibly successful in college and maybe not as professional as they should have been once they joined the NFL and had a very unsuccessful NFL career. People attacked his immaturity and his preparation. I don't remember anyone ever saying he didn't love the game. He didn't have a passion for the game. I never heard anyone go for that deep of a character assassination against Johnny Manziel. And I think it's because Johnny Manziel was white. And then on top of it, imagine being a young black man 
And your failures, your professional failures, whether it's football or being a dentist or being a custodian or being in the marketing profession, whatever your profession is, imagine your professional failures being talked about as emblematic of an entire class of people. And that's something else I don't think white people think about often enough. The pressure that so many of our black brothers and sisters are under every single day, not just to succeed for themselves, and however you want to define success in this context is fine, but to succeed for their entire race, because they're gonna, their entire race is going to be judged on their success or failure. Like, I have fucked up millions of things in my life. I've fucked up millions of things professionally in my life. Never once have I felt or heard or even had an inkling that people were judging my entire race based on my success or failures. So I cannot imagine, I can try to listen and understand, but I cannot imagine what that must feel like as a young black man or woman when everything you do professionally is going to reflect not just on you personally, but on your entire race. Not to mention, I cannot imagine that a white football player who failed, no matter how egregiously, and there are countless examples of egregious failures of, of so-called white superstars who are destined for greatness, who just never lived up to their billing. I cannot imagine someone coming for my, my love of the game. And so... Listeners, because I didn't have a lot planned to say about Mr. Haskins today, but listeners, I'm just asking you to consider once again, not only what we say about black athletes, especially black athletes at the pinnacle of the sport, but how we say it and what we don't say. Because it's not, and I've heard radio personalities bring this up this week. I heard a, a white radio personality this week mention that, well, race has nothing to do with the way people are criticizing Mr. Haskins because white quarterbacks get criticized all the time. And my answer is, well, duh, no shit. That's not the point. Race and white whiteness and white privilege are not as simplistic as to say, well, white people never have any criticism or white people never face any challenges. Therefore, race and white privilege don't exist. That's not what I'm trying to say either. What I'm just trying to say is that the tone and the language and the, the anger that people direct at Mr. Haskins, I do think is affected by his race. And it's, it's just sad and it's disappointing. And so it's something like I just mentioned, I would like my, my listeners to think about as they're watching sports, as they're talking about sports, as they're discussing sports. And it's this crazy conundrum, too, because often we talk about black athletes still as if it's all, and I mentioned this in season one, as if all their success is attributable to just like innate natural ability that is God-given and that they don't prepare and that they don't think and that they don't study and that they're not intellectual as well. None of that's true. That's all just a social construct associated with race. That's all just stereotypes. AKA black people are good because they're fast and strong and can jump and they don't even really have to think about it. That's all total bullshit. But think about that, the hypocrisy of 
society having that stereotype of all of the black athlete success is just tied to their innate God-given physical abilities. And then, however, the double-edged sword of when someone like Mr. Haskins isn't successful, people attacking him for not being intellectual and prepared enough in all these things that we never gave him credit for in the first place. Just think about it, please. Okay. That was, as I said, not part of today's planned podcast. Today's planned episode, and I realize we're already about halfway through our time, but that's okay. Today's planned episode is about me being a, what's the word? Not necessarily a punk. If I was black, it would have been, you, I would call myself a punk. Me as a middle schooler being a, a scamp, a mischievous, ne'er-do-well young man. And how never once in the midst of my middle school hijinks that I'm going to share with you in a few minutes. And season two has a lot of my middle school and high school hijinks. So if you enjoy what you're about to hear, don't worry. There's more of it in future episodes. Never once in the midst of these hijinks did I ever feel as if my life was in danger or did I ever feel as if anyone who caught me doing these hijinks was judging my entire race or judging me as a representative of my entire race. And it's, it's kind of that simplistic, it's simply put, sorry, not simplistic, simply put, I guess what the theme of the, the second half of today's episode is, is the idea that one of the, the biggest parts of white privilege is that white folks and especially white youth are allowed to be individuals. And we still don't often extend that same graciousness, that same understanding to black youth. So let me get down to the details. A couple of things that I did in middle school frequently, and by frequently, I mean so often that I can't even tell you how many times. One of them was shoplift. And I don't mean necessarily I am or clothing from Macy's type shoplifting. Remember, I grew up in a, in a small southern town. There was no Macy's to steal from. We did have a Leggett, but not quite a Macy's. But in terms of like stealing from baseball card stores, yes, those used to be a thing. In terms of, In terms of stealing from convenience stores and places like 7-Eleven, I, I had a problem. <laughs> by, by that, I mean, I did it a fucking lot all the time. And we would steal, you know, you can imagine chips and soda and candy, dip, cigarettes, pretty much your 13-year-old boy's dream, what you could steal. And, you know, occasionally, like I said, I would steal maybe bigger ticket items. But it's less about what I stole and just more about how frequently and how brazenly I stole. I guarantee you I was not a master criminal. Despite the fact that in my memory I thought I was. Like, I know at one point me and one of my best friends growing up thought we had this great plan where one of us would distract, in air quotes, whoever the worker was in the convenience store or the 7-Eleven. And the other one would just fill a book bag with all the candy they could. And then we would casually walk out 
And we would do the same thing at, you know, card stores or collectible stores as we're stealing baseball and basketball and football cards. And as I look back on it, I realized we probably weren't that good on it, good at it. But for the most part, I got away with it. So we're going to come back to my stealing, my shoplifting in a second. The other thing I was really fond of doing in middle school. You guys get to be my therapist because now I'm realizing that these two things, neither one of them really shine the best light on me as a human. But the other thing that I was really fond of doing in middle school was throwing shit at cars. I mean, moving cars. And by shit, I mean crab apples. Not necessarily rocks, because even rocks was a, a line maybe too far from me. Eggs. And just about anything short of a rock that I could find or that me and my friends could find to throw at a moving car. Now, what the fuck, first of all, right? Like, think about it. I've never had this happen to me. I can only imagine what it must feel like as a driver driving down the street to have a crab apple smash into the side of your car. Like, we could have easily caused someone to die. I had no idea of that, like, at the time. I wasn't, I'm not a psychopath. That wasn't our goal, to hurt or kill people. Our goal was, though, to fuck with people. And to kind of give the world a middle finger. And so those two things, shoplifting and throwing shit at cars and moving cars, two of my favorite pastimes as a middle schooler. And the reason I talk about these two favorite pastimes, because I'm sure many of my listeners were engaged in similar hijinks. But I need my white listeners to understand, because I didn't understand this at the time. I had no concept of this at the time. Maybe some of my friends did. If they did, we never talked about it. But I need my white listeners to understand that if I had been black, or that if they had been black, because I don't have a lot of strong memories of my my friends at the time who were doing this being black. Maybe occasionally they were, but I think it was mostly me and other white I guess we weren't quite teenagers, but on the cusp of teenagers engaging in this activity, that if we had been black, it wouldn't have been middle school hijinks. It would have been a matter of life and death. We would have been risking our lives every time, not just shoplifting, because shoplifting could have led to police getting involved, and we know that when police get involved with young black males, that things can go awry really quickly. And by awry, I don't want to use euphemisms either. What I mean is that when police get involved with young black males, young black males can often get murdered. So I can't imagine how exponentially more risky my shoplifting would have been had I been a young black male instead of a young white male. But it's really the throwing shit at cars that that was risky as a white male, because trust me, and I'll give you some examples in a second. Trust me, people were not happy when their cars got hit by shit. Now, oftentimes they didn't know where it came from, and and we didn't, you know, we would we would kind of be behind bushes or in hill, you know, in a like area where maybe there was a hill or something else that we could hide behind, so that people, by the time they figured out what had happened, they had no idea where it came from. But imagine how risky, how much more risky that behavior would have been if we had been young black men. 
I mean, Ahmaud Aubrey got shot and killed, got murdered for fucking jogging. Imagine a handful of black 13-year-olds. And all my black listeners already know this. Like, I'm not telling them anything. But I need, need my white listeners to understand how vastly different the two existences, our two worlds are because of white privilege. Because occasionally we did, me and my friends did get caught throwing shit at cars. I'll give you a funny one and I'll give you a not so funny one. And I, I'm convinced, I am convinced that both of these situations would have gone vastly differently and would have ended up much differently had me and my friends at the time been black. The first instance involved us hitting a moving car and it was with like crab apples or something of the such, something about that consistency and that size. We hit a moving car. It was a minivan driven by a woman who turns out she was pregnant. We didn't know this at the time we threw the apples at her van and who had her 10 or 11 year old son in the driver's seat, in the passenger seat, in the passenger's front seat next to her. We hit her van and in my memory, Multiple times, you know, because there was probably five or six of us that afternoon. So we see it. We all threw. And apparently one of these crab apples went through the rolled down passenger seat window and hit her son in the side of the head. I cannot imagine how painful that must have been for him. I cannot imagine how angry this woman must have been. Well, I can kind of imagine because I know how angry she was because she pulled over her minivan. Got out, clearly pregnant. I want to say like seven months pregnant. And chased us down. Me and my six or seven friends, we had a gigantic head start. But, you know, that superpower that parents get when their children are in danger, she definitely had it that day. Because she hawked us all fucking down. Now, side note, this woman actually knew me because she went to church with me and my parents. And so I myself, and I take a little bit of pride in this, and I probably should, didn't actually get caught because as I see her chasing me and my friends down and I look over my shoulder and I'm like, holy shit, I know this woman. I kind of broke free from them and ran in a different direction. And so she stayed with the main group. But she chased down this group of my, my friends and was irate, understandably irate. And they were able to convince her that they knew who had hit her car, but they weren't the ones who actually had thrown anything. And that the people who hit her car had gone in a house right up the block. And now, yes, it's possible that this woman is just dumb as shit to believe that story. Because trust me, the geography of the space and the distance between us hitting her car and how quickly she pulled over and started chasing us. It's hard for me to believe that she didn't realize we were the ones who threw it. But maybe she's just incredibly dense. Maybe. Or maybe it's a bunch of black 10, 11, 12, and 13-year-olds. Sorry, a bunch of white 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds. See, I'm getting ahead of myself. She gave us the benefit of the doubt. She gave us the, oh, these kids look like good kids. They couldn't have been the ones who almost made my son go deaf. I don't think, parenthetically, that her son had any lasting hearing damage. However, she was screaming that my son is deaf as she was chasing us. I told you, I'm not coming off good in this season. Because 
even after this event, we all thought it was hilarious. Like, we were little assholes. But I cannot for a second believe that if we had been living in the small southern city where I grew up in, and instead of five or six white youths, we had been five or six black youths, I cannot believe that we would have escaped scot-free from this woman. I cannot. Common sense and experience will not let me believe that. I think police would have been immediately involved. I think charges would have likely been pressed. And our entire trajectory of our lives could have changed that day for something that's definitely a dick move. Throwing things at a moving car is a gigantic dick move. But for something that's a pretty normal dick move amongst many white youths, at least white males, at least the ones I was like, me and all my friends have some sort of stories of doing something like this often together. But even independent of each other, it wasn't like throwing shit at cars was this uniquely horrible act that just I did. Relatively common. And yet I think our whiteness saved us a bit that day. Another time, this time was legit scary. That time with the pregnant lady ended up being more humorous than scary. And our whiteness, I think, is what allowed it to be humorous. Not only did we not get in any sort of trouble, but we were never in any sort of trouble to begin with, if you think about it. The worst that could have happened to that to us that day was that woman scolding us, maybe calling our parents, maybe. But chances are a scolding was the worst that was going to happen. And there's no way you can convince me that if we'd have been black, a scolding from a pregnant white lady who thought her son was just made deaf by a projectile that was thrown at her moving car, that a scolding would have been all black youths would have faced. But another time I was out with some friends, also in middle school. This was at a sleepover, and we had snuck out. And not to go to a party or anything, we're kind of, so let's say maybe sixth or seventh grade right on the cusp of sneaking out to go to parties. We were sneaking out just to do shit. Who knows what we were doing? Probably egging houses, maybe trying to break into unlocked cars, another really, really dumb, dangerous behavior that young white youths can engage in with impunity without having to worry about it being a matter of life and death. Whereas all my black listeners know, especially my black parents know, that there is no way that anything of what I'm describing today would be tolerated in their families because it would literally be risking life and death. When you see Tamir Rice getting killed just for playing cops and robbers in a park and Trayvon Martin getting killed for just, I don't know, walking, possibly looking in a car, then there's no way anyone can convince me that throwing shit at cars and egging houses and shoplifting is in any way less risky than those behaviors. Anyway, I digress. Back to my final example. Me and two of my friends, who I'm not really close to anymore, but good dudes growing up, we snuck out. We were spending the night at one of my friends' house. We all three snuck out that night and went on some neighborhood hijinks. I don't remember. Maybe we spray-painted some shit, egged some houses. Who knows? And it was getting late. We were heading home. So probably two or three in the morning, heading back to his house. And we're in a residential neighborhood, so not a lot of traffic. That was our first mistake. Well, our first mistake was deciding we wanted to throw, I think it was eggs in this case, but I can't be positive. 
Our first mistake was decided when we saw this car coming down this residential street. Our first mistake was, hey, let's hide behind this fence and pelt this car. Our second mistake was doing it on a residential street where there was absolutely no traffic. And so, therefore, it was going to be very easy for this car to pull over and investigate. And our third mistake was, well, I'll let y'all decide how many more mistakes there are coming. Anyway, me and my friends just light this car up. Scrambled eggs everywhere. For about two seconds, we're proud as shit of ourselves. Because believe it or not, throwing a projectile, throwing a crab apple or an egg at a moving car, is not as easy as it sounds. I was a bit of an expert. But you have to kind of time it up, right? You have to throw it a little bit ahead of the car because the car is moving so much faster than you realize. If you throw it at where you think the car is, you're going to be behind it every time. You have to throw it in front of the car. You have to throw it at where you think the car is going to be. So that was momentary elation as we just pelted this car with eggs. That momentary elation gave way real quickly to abject fear. Because two older teenagers, probably not much older than 17 or 18, got out of that car. Obviously angry as shit. Like you think a pregnant mom is angry. These two dudes were pissed and they were screaming obscenities about how they're going to beat our ass. And we all scattered. Me and my two other friends scattered. Jumping fences. I swear to God, I jumped the fence that said beware a dog on it. But that's really just in my memory. But I'll tell you, I'm feeling that. I don't know if that's accurate, but it feels accurate. Jumping fence, sprinting through yards. We are just bailing out, all scared to death. These dudes look big. They look tough. They sounded angry. They threatened to beat our ass. And we had no escape plan prior to throwing these eggs either. That's the, the hubris of white youth, right? Like we never even thought about escape plans ever that I can recall. Anyway, I run, probably tears streaming down my eyes. I run all the way back to my friend's house. And I sneak back in through his, you know, his back door. We were all in the den or the living room and his parents were still sound asleep upstairs, whatever. And I'm the first one there and I get home and I'm like, all right, shit. Who knows where they are, but they must have, you know, they'll make it back sooner or later. My two friends did make it back that night, probably 20 or 30 minutes later. Bloody and with bruised ribs. They didn't escape like I did. Now, I'm not faster than them. I'm guessing I just got lucky. Or maybe I'm more cowardly. Maybe they turned to, like, face their accusers and, and I just ran. I don't think so. They said they ran and just got cornered. And they got roughed up. So much so, and this is the worst, which anybody listening can identify with this. White or black, you can all identify with this. When you have done, done something that you have technically got away with, but it has consequences that are so negative that you then have to go tell on yourself because the consequences have now spiraled out of control. That was what happened to us. We technically got away, and by got away, I mean didn't get caught with our parents. Think about that right there. That was my biggest fear. Throughout this entire episode, all these stories of shoplifting and throwing shit at moving cars and just being a general asshole, a delinquent, my biggest fear was not the cops. It was not being killed. It was not be, becoming ever the victim of violence. My biggest fear was my parents were going to find out and, and, you know, ground me or take away whatever privileges I had at that age. That right there is white privilege. Because I guarantee you, if you're a black youth, 
You don't have the privilege of your biggest fear being my mom and dad might catch me if you're doing some stupid shit. Your biggest fear is the police are going to kill me or some private white citizen is going to kill me. Think about that for a fucking second. I cannot imagine. Any more than I can imagine what it's like to be Mr. Haskins and be considered emblematic of my entire race. I cannot imagine what it must be like to be a black youth, especially a male. Where, quote unquote, typical youthful hijinks can be a death sentence. That's, I just, I don't, I'm I'm speechless. But that was my biggest fear. Where my parents are going to find out. So ostensibly, we got away scot-free. Me and my friends. I didn't get beat up. I didn't even, other than for like two seconds of them opening the car door, I didn't even see our assailants. My friends got beat up. But we all made it back to the house. And our parents didn't find out. However, because they got beat up so badly, we had to go wake my friend's dad up so that two of my friends, the two who didn't escape, excuse me, could go to the hospital and get checked out. And turns out, long story short, I think there were some bruised ribs. One of them had a knife put to his throat, but it was just kind of left a scratch mark around his throat and some stitches. So physically, they were going to be okay in a few days or weeks. But think about that for a second. I've thought about that night a few times as an adult. If the three of us had been young black males and had peppered someone's car, some angry, probably less than sober, older teenager older teenage boys slash men's car with eggs at three in the morning and been caught by these angry, older, less than sober teenagers slash men. Would my friends have walked away with just some bruised ribs and a few stitches and a, and a scratch from a knife that was just held to their neck? What are the chances that that knife would have done more than just menaced my friend, what are the chances that those bruised ribs would have turned into a punctured or collapsed lung? What are the chances that my two friends would have been left bleeding out in some poor woman's backyard? And obviously, I don't know the percentage, but I know it's, I know those chances are higher than they were for me and my two friends as, as, as three white kids throwing eggs at three in the morning in a residential neighborhood. I know that for a fact. I've seen too much to think otherwise. I've heard too many stories to believe otherwise. And so once again, whiteness protected us. Even as we are destroying property, even as we are maiming people, Because that little boy who got hit in the head with the crab apple, I'm sure, like I said, I'm pretty sure he didn't have lasting hearing damage, but I'm sure he was not feeling good for a while. Even as we are engaging in behavior that could very well have led to someone's death, because hitting a moving vehicle with any kind of projectile can cause catastrophic accidents, even as we're doing all of that, never once did I fear for my physical safety. And even when our physical safety was in jeopardy, or in this case, the physical safety of my two cohorts who weren't slick enough or lucky enough or fast enough, I think the second one is the accurate one, to escape, 
even when physical violence didn't come, it was relatively mild. They were able to still walk home under their own power that night. Yes, they had a bloody t-shirt and some sore ribs and a knife indentation on their neck, but that's it. Imagine how much worse that would have been if they had been black in a small southern city. And I'm not talking about in 1940. I'm talking about in the late 80s. Imagine how much more dangerous that behavior would have been. And so I guess today's theme, as I wrap things up, is just to think about, once again, as adults, which groups of young people we allow to just be boys will be boys. And which groups of young people are literally risking their lives? I'm not exaggerating in one bit, but literally risking their lives as they engage in youthful indiscretions, as they engage in knucklehead behavior. And you know the answer, not just from today's podcast. You know the answer before today's podcast. And I am convinced in my bones Two things, first of all, that had I been a black young man, perhaps I wouldn't have been engaged in those behaviors anyway. Although that one, I'm less convinced of. Like I said, perhaps I wouldn't have been engaged in those behaviors because my parents would have had to drill into me from day one how fucking dangerous and life and death those behaviors were. Trust me, as white kids don't get any version of the speech. A lot of white folks listening don't even know what the speech is right now or the talk. White parents don't have to give the talk to their children. So perhaps I wouldn't have engaged in these behaviors had I been black. That one's up in the air. But I am certainly convinced of this. Had I engaged in these exact same behaviors as a black youth, I would have been taking my life into my own hands in a way that I know for certain I was not as a white youth. Had me and my two friends engaged in these behaviors They might not have walked home that night, bloody as they were. Had me and that group of friends who bludgeoned that pregnant lady's car with crab apples, had we been black, we might all have criminal records to this day for that event, or worse. It might have ended up like Tamir Rice or Trayvon. Think about the privilege of life and death that we extend to white youth and how we fail so often to extend that same privilege, the privilege of life to black youth. I've kept y'all long enough. Episode three, it's a wrap. I appreciate you always for your listening, for your time, for your understanding of the, the amateur niche Amateur-ishness, I should just stop right there, but for the uh, lack of polish to my production, I appreciate you understanding that because polish is not really what I'm going for. Thank you for listening. Thank you for contemplating. Thank you for continuing to reach out. Like always, my email is jameslincoln313 at gmail.com. You can find me on social media. Please let me hear your stories. Let me hear your comments, your questions, your concerns. And tune in. Episodes four, five, and six will be 
be dropping very soon. Peace and love, you guys.